This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of Twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 139 of Hibbly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. And I'm excited because we got some really cool stories coming up over the next couple weeks. Good. Tonight's story, I know we're not getting into it yet, but tonight's story is on what is believed to be the first documented ghost in the history of the United States. Wow. Oddly enough, I had never heard of this. Jessica Walters, who is the host of the Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos podcast, and Booze is Mm B-O-O-S, said, hey, this story is really cool, and I think it suits you more than it does us right now. So then I start looking into it, and it's to be the most the first documented, mm-hmm. there's not a ton of information on it. It took a long time to research just to get enough to really get the story. But then once I started finding all these little bits and pieces, it's an incredible story. Very so nice. Excited. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Jessica. Yes. Next week, even though we're, I usually don't even know what we're doing next week yet, next week we're doing another episode of Past Lives. Mm-hmm. And that's been almost two years since we did the first one, we've we've had a lot of people say, hey, why don't y'all do another one? Uh-huh. And I guess the timing's right on it. Okay, great. So we put these on. And then I'm excited about that because these stories that I got were, I mean, just flat up awesome. Groovy. So anyways, there we go. And then next week's the Louisville show. Yeah. we're going to be doing a, we'll be doing a, a um, story there that we're not going to do for the podcast. Okay, We'll great. do it at the end of the year mm-hmm. after we get through it all the live shows. But it's an awesome show. So there's... During the next two weeks, people who come to the live show in Louisville will hear three pretty cool stories. Nice. Sounds great. As usual, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter who you represent. Thank you guys and gals for what you do. God bless each and every one of you. Keeping you in our prayers. Thank you for keeping us safe. As usual just like with the military and the civil servants. We want to let people know that if you're going through a rough time right now, you're struggling, uh, maybe you're battling depression, maybe you just got a lot of bad luck going on in your life. If you need to talk to somebody, you can talk to us. You can talk to anybody in our group, Hillbilly Horror Stories uh, group that we have on Facebook. You can text the suicide hotline in America, 741-741, or you can call them at 1-800-273-8255. Yes. All kinds of options for you guys. Please please get in touch with somebody. You're not alone. All right. Let's jump in to Nellie Butler. I thought you were just going to say Nellie Olson. <laughs> I absolutely would not say Nellie Olson. <laughs> and if y'all hear some noise in the background, there is a tremendous thunderstorm going on with crazy winds oh, and I know. all that. I bet it's going to blow all our blooms off that just came up on our tree. I hope not. I mean, it's like really windy. Yeah, that's what happens in the spring. Like my weave would be over in somebody else's yard. Honestly. I don't think it would come unattached. Oh, you never know. It's pretty windy out there. And with the color of it, they'll probably think the Easter bunny got blown into the yard or something. Aw, I would love that. If that's what they thought. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today we've got the story of, as I said earlier, what many believe is the first documented ghost in the United States. So this goes back to August of 1799. They didn't have cell phones then. Whatever. This is an amazing story. You don't even know. I do know. (laughs) Charlie Chaplin's like, yeah, they did. (laughs) So this is an amazing story with literally hundreds of witnesses. Oh, wow. Hundreds. So tonight we're going to share the story of Nellie Butler. So before we get into the story, let's first learn a little bit about who Nellie was as a person. 
Nellie's real name was Eleanor, and she was the second of nine children born to David and Joanna Hooper on April 25, 1776. She was born in Franklin, Maine. Now, she met George Butler when she was 19 years old, and George was a young sea captain. George's dad, Moses, fought in the Revolutionary War and was one of the first English settlers in Franklin, Maine. George's family owned a sawmill, and they were pretty well off. Mm -hmm. They they had some money. George and Nellie got married, and two years later, Nellie became pregnant. Unfortunately, on June 13th, 1797, Nellie passed away after a really complicated childbirth where she had also lost her baby the day before. (gasps) Oh, Nellie. She That's was, sad. That's so sad. It is. Aww. Go ahead. She was buried in an unmarked grave. Why? On, well, I don't know. Why would they mark her grave? <laughs> I don't know. But she was buried in an unmarked grave on Butler Point, which is a heavily wooded area in the Franklin uh, main area on the banks of the Egypt Bay. Oh, that sounds kind of cool. It does sound cool. So George would remain single until the winter of 1799 when he met a young woman named Lydia Blaisdell. Now, this would set off a chain of events that would be extremely hard to believe if not for all the documentation and the witnesses we talked about. First of all, to say Lydia Blaisdell was a young woman may be a stretch. She was just barely 15 years old. Her family wasn't real thrilled with George, and so let's learn a little bit about her family to see where all this ties in, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. Lydia's dad was Abner Blaisdell, and he also fought in the Revolutionary War. He married. Thank you for your service. (laughs) (laughs) What? He's only been dead for 300 years, so. Oh, well, I gotta recognize. He married Mary Card. She passes away, and he marries another Mary, Mary Simpson. They lived 10 miles south of Franklin in Sullivan, Maine. So Abner and Mary, they had seven children, and Lydia was the second. She was born in 1785. In 1799, during a very harsh winter, Lydia caught a form of pestilence. What the heck is that? Well, glad you asked. Pestilence is a fatal epidemic disease, kind of like the bubonic plague. That's actually a form of it. She was bedridden and struggling to stay alive. Now, this is where the string of ghostly encounters would start. Lydia heard some strange knocking um, actually coming down from the cellar. So it just just sounded like knocking. Of the cellars downstairs. Typically, that's where they put the cellars. I know, but you said knocking down from the cellar. Okay. (laughs) Down. Shared knocking down from the cellar. Okay. That's just weird how you said it. Okay, I'll give you that. So the family searched the cellar. And they couldn't find anything going on. Mm-hmm. The family was very religious, so Abner called the family together to pray about the situation. Mm-hmm. Basically, he was trying to find out if the sounds were coming from heaven or some other source. He was basically praying that the Lord would tell him either way. So at least he had an answer. So the knocking continued. But in a strange twist, the Blaisdell family started to hear a woman's voice coming from the cellar. Now, they would always go down and check, but always get the same result. Nothing or no one there. So Abner gets ticked off one time after hearing this knocking, and he just runs down to the cellar and says, Who are you? And the woman's voice said, I am the dead wife of Captain George Butler, born Nellie Hooper. Oh, I bet he was shocked that he she answered. I would think so. <laughs> so Nellie Butler then became the first documented ghost in America. As December came around and started going into January, they started to see an apparition of a woman that was wearing a white dress in the cellar. Mm-hmm. So just exactly what was the reason for Nellie making these appearances, making all these mm-hmm. sounds, and making herself known? Well, for the last two years before this, George had been seeing Lydia. She would have been 13 at the time, and he was 27. Abner Blaisdell did not like this at all. We covered that a little bit earlier. Now, we hear about lots of marriages in the 1700s, 1800s with women really young, but this really wasn't the case in Maine at this time period. 
So 15 years old was still unusually young, and the captain's age was an issue with Abner, with him being 27. Yeah, that, I mean, know, that's a big when difference. When first start. So this is the odd part. It appears that Nellie was there to change Abner's mind. Even more odd is she basically told him that it was going to happen. Nellie said, The parties must and would be joined, and God hath joined together. Let no man put asunder. Is she the one that made that up? No, I don't think she made it up. She just basically was quoting the Bible. Oh, well, yeah. So Abner figures this is God's will. So on January 1st, Nellie's ghost tells Abner and Lydia to go visit George Butler's dad, Moses, and tell him what that she wished that the pair would wed. Mm-hmm. She also wanted them to read a verse from Scripture to Moses. She wanted Mark 10 and these lines specifically. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So they went to Franklin in a horrible snowstorm. During the trip, Lydia became upset. She went, you know, well, she wouldn't, as much as this seems like she really wouldn't involved in any decision making, she really kind of wouldn't. And she wasn't really big on getting married either. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, on orders from a ghost. Well, yeah, <laughs> really. So Nellie appeared before Lydia and basically just tried to comfort her. And apparently it worked. So they get to Moses' house. They were quickly met with anger because Moses was as much against this wedding as Ab- Abner had been. So they tried to explain what Nellie, you know, had sent them there for. And tried to tell them everything that she wanted to say. And she even said, hey, they even told her, say, hey, Nellie will make herself visible to you if that's what it takes. And Moses refused, and he sent them away. A few hours later, though, Moses kind of starts thinking, and he's like, why would Abner come so far out of his way in such bad weather, risk his own life, to talk about a wedding that he's been against as long as, you know, I have. Mm-hmm. So he starts thinking maybe something is up. But this time, though, Abner and Lydia, they get back to their house. Yeah. Now they back in a snowstorm. So they went through all that for nothing. Yeah. And they start hearing the knock from the cellar again. She said, what I say? <laughs> well, Nellie wanted them now to go to her dad, mm-hmm. Nellie's dad, um, David Hooper. And she wanted her dad to come to the house so he could see her. And they weren't real thrilled about going back out in the snow to take a six-mile trek up the road, go six miles in a horse. Oh, God, yeah, it took forever. You know. So they waited till the very next morning, which was the morning of January 2nd. Plus, I think Abner really wanted to watch the Rose Bowl or something. It was New Year's Day. I'm just speculating. woman, don't you know the game's on? (laughs) So they get Nellie's dad. He obviously was skeptical, but he was curious. They also visited George Butler, which was supposedly her ex, Mm -hmm. and gave him the same invite. So David gets to the house, and Abner took him into the cellar. Nellie spoke again, and Mr. Hooper was no longer a skeptic. He's like, that's my daughter. I can tell. Matter of fact, he said she gave such clear and irresistible Tokens of her being the spirit of my own daughter has gave me no less satisfaction and admiration of delight. Soon after Nellie's dad had returned home, Nellie appeared to Abner's son, Paul. Paul was terrified and ran home. Apparently this was out in the field. He said that the apparition was chasing him and floating in the air behind him. (laughs) George came to the house eventually Shortly after David Hooper had left, George said, when I was called to talk with the voice, I asked, who are you? She said, I was once your wife. Do you remember what I told you when I was alive? George answered, I do not really know what you mean. 
Nellie said, Do you not remember I told you I did not think I should live long with you? I told you that if you were to leave me, I would never wish to change my condition, but that if I was no longer here and was to leave you, I could not blame you if you did. That was nice. George said, This passed between me and my first wife while she was alive, and there was no living persons with hearing distance but she and myself. He said, I am sure that this was never revealed to any person. No living person could have told it to me before the voice she did. Mm. So he's basically saying, first of all, she's the only one that knew this. Yeah. And on top of that, that's her voice. Oh, my god! I know her voice. That would be amazing. George Butler went on to say about the encounter, There was something appeared to my view right before me, like a person in a winding sheet and her arms folded underneath the sheet and on her arm there appeared to be a very small child. By this appearance, I did not know possibly, but I might be deceived. I reached out my left hand to take hold of it and I saw my hand in the middle of it, but I felt nothing. That same evening, it appeared and disappeared to me three times. George was not alone that day. So when all this was happening, he wasn't by himself. He had a Frederick Hosef that came along with him. And he confirmed that he saw the apparition and saw George's hand pass through it. Oh, cool. David Hooper, which was Nellie's dad, went to Moses, which was George's dad, and told him what he had seen. And that he had spoken to Nellie's ghost and that Nellie had said that the wedding between George and Lydia was a divine order. Moses still didn't like it, but he gave his okay. Who was he to dispute God? Mm -hmm. On January 5th, Moses made his way to Abner's house to give his blessing. Both fathers were now reluctantly on board. They set the wedding date for May 29th of 1800. As soon as they announced the wedding date, several people in town felt it was Lydia's attempt to kind of trick George into marrying her. Others in town felt like the spirit was not Nellie, but a demon. This prompted Nellie's sister, Sally Wentworth, to visit on January 3rd. She said that she had heard the knocks. Lydia spoke, and the spirit spoke back, and it sounded like her sister. Mm Mm-hmm. She said, while it sounded like Nellie, it sounded like her on her deathbed, not healthy. She felt that it was the devil and felt that this was the way until she felt that way way, all the way up to her death. Oh, wow. She she never believed this was Nellie's ghost. She always felt like this was the devil. Why would the devil want them to marry? I don't know. But, you know, back in 1800... They're not going to really take ghosts. They, they, everything. I mean, there was a time when everybody was way more religious for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming that just thinking something like that either had to be witchcraft or black magic. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, you got to remember the Salem witch trials was. Oh, yeah. They not weren't that, playing back <laughs> that then. That was just 20, 30 years before that. So. Yeah. Yeah. So we mentioned Paul Blaisdell earlier. He's the uh, he's the son and Lydia's brother. So she's he's Abner's son, Lydia's brother. He invited a Captain Paul Simpson over to kind of see Nellie because apparently, you know, she's a circus attraction at this point. They're just <laughs> inviting her friends and stuff over. Of course, as we know the routine now, they went down to the cellar. Captain Simpson, Simpson heard the knocks and he spoke to her. He said the same thing as... She had told the sister Sally earlier in that day. She she said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So let's think about this. Just like I said a second ago, we're in New England in the year 1800. Wasn't that long before when they were, you know, having the Salem witch trials and stuff like that up in New England. This was still a very religious time. And they weren't really used to these type of occurrences, Mm -hmm. as you can imagine. So why weren't these people scared? 
That's a good question. And I would say it's mainly because Nellie's ghost had a way with words. She was delightful and soothing. And she always would tell people at the very beginning not to fear her. There was no need to fear her. Yeah, I was wondering, like, she was saying a bunch of different things now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, she's like preaching and stuff. Mm -hmm. So by February of 1800, Nellie was becoming famous in the area. People crowded into the, the Blaisdell house to see and hear her. One female witness said, At first, the apparition was a massive light. Then it grew into a personal form about as tall as myself. The glow from the apparition had a constant, tremulous motion. Like resting glitch face. <laughs> the personal form became, you know, became a shape and then it expanded in every way and then vanished in a moment. So she never left that house. Everybody came to that house to see her. Sort of. So, okay. You'll find out more here oh, in a little bit. crap. Nellie then disappeared for four months. Oh, she and was then, on a hiatus, huh? <laughs> And then she reappeared in May in front of 20 witnesses in the Blaisdell cellar, obviously. Abner asked why she chose the cellar rather than upstairs, where more people could see her. Nellie said that she didn't want to scare any more children. So before the end of the year, over 100 people had seen or talked to the ghost of Nellie Butler. Most had given sworn testimony to a traveling evangelist, Abraham Cummings. Reverend Cummings didn't believe in ghosts, and he felt that his parishioners shouldn't either. He made his way over to the Blaisdell house, and he was kind of pissed off, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. He was going to give them a piece of their mind. When he saw Nellie with his own eyes, he said he was surrounded, or he said she was surrounded by bright light, and first had her form was no bigger than a toad. How do you get a bright light from a toad? Well, I don't know. Oh. Maybe it's like a shark with a freaking laser beam. (laughs) (laughs) He said Nellie then grew to a normal height right before his eyes. After that, maybe because Nellie was tired, she was only seen one other time before the wedding. She appeared to Captain George Butler one night. He was in his bedroom, and she gave him a tongue lashing for remarrying after he promised her on his deathbed that he would never remarry another. Well, he was lonely. I guess. So the day after the marriage, Nellie appeared to the newlyweds. She told them that Lydia was not long for this world. (gasps) She said that Lydia would become pregnant and give birth to one child before an untimely death would take her. Oh, great. After that, the appearances again stopped for 63 days. Then everything escalated. In August of 1800, alone, she was witnessed on 29 occasions. Whoa. She always appeared wearing a white dress or a shroud. Sometimes she was wearing a cap, sometimes not. All of this commotion obviously brought skeptics. Most thought it was Lydia that was, you know, put to rest, though, on an occasion when 14 people were in the cellar. The voice told Lydia to go upstairs and sit on the kitchen hearth with the others so they would know that it was not her who Mm -hmm. was speaking. After she left, the ghost spoke to the rest of the group on several topics. Abner asked where his father was. She said he is in heaven, praising God with the angels. Yay. In fact, he had died seven days earlier in York, England, but the news had not made it to him yet. So he didn't know that his dad was Oh, dead. no way. He eventually, she won the surprise. <laughs> I don't think that's the kind of surprise you ruined. Oh. It's not like a spoiler alert. <laughs> That'd been funny. Spoiler alert, your dad's dead. Oh, my gosh. Well, at least he's in heaven. So she invited people to stand as close to her as possible and ask any question they wanted about her past life, which she answered perfectly. By mid-August, more and more people were coming to see Nellie. Now, we mentioned earlier, why weren't people scared? And usually in in that time period, people would assume witchcraft or black magic. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of people in the um, village, I guess, or the city that did feel that way. And what Nellie started doing was countering all of this devil and witchcraft talk by preaching on religious topics. 
Paul Simpson, Simpson asked if she loved Jesus Christ. She said yes, and she started singing Alleluia. She even pointed out Thomas Uran, who was a local skeptic. She said, you often said that I am a devil or a witch. I am from above, praising God and the Lamb. There were times when people started to get rowdy in the cellar and were sent home. Eventually, the town of Franklin was divided on the whole subject. People were becoming very vocal on the subject. On the night of August 13th, 47 people gathered to see Nellie. Nellie had something special planned for them. At 1 a.m., she demanded that the group march to a neighboring house that belonged to James Miller. He was one of the loudest skeptics in town. Mm -hmm. They were um, kind of ordered to walk on the side of the, uh, or side by side and go to his house, which was two miles away. All the while they were singing the 84th Psalm. So they get to his house and they go up and knock on the door. They ask James Miller to please take them to his cellar. Cause you know, that's the thing now he agreed and he did so. Once they were in the cellar, Nellie's voice came from nowhere. She said, I've come to let you know I can speak in this cellar as well as the other cellar. Are you convinced? He was convinced, and he went outside with the group and waited for Nellie's appearance. She appeared and told them to keep marching with Lydia at the head of the march. This was kind of to put an end to the talk that Lydia was behind um, all of this scheme or being mm -hmm. a witch or any of that stuff. After this, things kind of began to settle down a little bit. Nellie had one last command. She asked that her baby be exhumed and reburied closer to her grave on Butler Point so they could rise to heaven together on Judgment Day. Hmm. There was only 30 feet between the two anyway, but 80 people showed up to watch the baby be exhumed and reburied a little closer. Now, George and Lydia, they settled down, and they started enjoying their married life eventually. Lydia became pregnant and was expecting a little one in March of 1801. It was not an easy childbirth, and just like Nellie uh, had prophesied, both passed away during childbirth. Both were buried alongside Nellie and her baby on Butler Point. Evangelist Abraham Cummings became very interested in this account, and he gathered several people and got all of their accounts of, of the incidents throughout the last year, and he published all of them in a book. And that's how we know most of the story about Nellie Butler. But what was the point of them being married if all that was going to happen in the end? What I, was the point of that? I don't know. Just to prove she was what she said was going to be right? No, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there had to be some other reason for that. I mean, I don't know. And how about all those people in that damn cellar all the time? They had to get old. <laughs> I'm sure. People can't go to bed. I'm sure it probably did. Can't, you know, can't take a shower because people always run in their house. And I don't think the there was cellar. a whole lot of showers being taken in 1800. Oh, well, sponge bath. <laughs> I mean, they'd be interrupting the flow. You know, you like to bury the lead a lot. So the truth of the matter is, what's your thoughts on, I mean, you've got a ghost who literally showed up and hundreds of people saw and heard mm -hmm. and documented and you're more concerned about when they could take a shower in the inconvenience. True, true story. So I mean, I think that's pretty amazing, and I think it would be pretty dang cool to be able to talk to him, you know, that guy, talk to his daughter again, and things like that. Wouldn't that be nice? But then she just disappeared. I know, but at least they had the chance to do that. I thought I, I thought the whole story was pretty cool. No, I agree. I think it's very cool, but I just really. Just don't know what the point of that whole thing was to make them get married. Because if they hadn't got married and she hadn't got pregnant, then she wouldn't have died. You feel me? Yeah. 
I mean, it was like, was it like revenge or something? I don't know. But at the same time, I mean, if you're a religious person, a lot of times you hear God's got a plan and you don't question it. It just is what it is. I mean, unfortunately, there are kids that are sick right now and you could say the same thing. Well, what's the point? Yeah. What was the point of a child being born if they're only going to live for three years and pass away from cancer or something like that? I don't know. And it's probably along the same line. I don't, you know. I don't know what the plan is. Mm-hmm. No, that was pretty cool, though. I didn't mention at the beginning of the show, and I really should have, that we have an interview with exorcist slash demonologist Bishop James Long at the end of the show. Very cool. It's a very good interview. I think you guys will really enjoy it. From I mean, how often do you get to listen to an exorcist? True. And this guy... In all honesty, I mean, and I'm billing him as an exorcist, demonologist, blah, 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 blah. The reality of it is he is a man of God, Mm -hmm. and he does a lot of really good stuff. He does. For our community. And we get to talk a little bit about some of that, along with the the cool stuff about being an exorcist stuff, too. But he's also going to be the special guest host. I know. So a lot of you guys are going to get to meet him. Yeah, next week. So he was asking me, what time should I be there? Now, the event starts at 2. And what I had to carefully think out is the couple, Andrea and Tom Payne from We Drink and We Know Things, are a tad bit vulgar, which by their own account, they were really excited about being able to use some foul language at the event because originally we said no. But then we got the the boys from Brohio. <laughs> and how do I explain to a priest that, hey, um, they're also vulgar. <laughs> yeah, they're probably at some point in time will have talk about a finger in somebody's butt because that <laughs> inevitably, inevitably comes up in every conversation between Nick and Rob. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? You really don't even need to show up till about 4.30. <laughs> and you're going on at 5. So let's go ahead and get you through. Cause, and I told him, I said, look, I said, these two these two shows, they use a lot of adult language. Mm-hmm. Some people are okay with that. I know you're a man of God. Some people are still okay with that. Some people aren't. He just said, I probably wouldn't feel real comfortable if I'm there wearing the collar, um, you know, with the language. So, but it was funny to try to have to explain to him. <laughs> if you ever had to try to explain some of the stuff that comes out of Brohio's mouth to a priest, and I never thought I'd be in that situation, but mm. who'd have thought the day that I scheduled a priest? I've got both of those on the same show. So I think it's awesome. It's going to be fun as hell. Both ends of the spectrum there. We have everything. Yeah, literally. It is both ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be really fun, and we're excited. And uh, by the time you listen to this, that show's probably going to be sold out because there's only two tickets left. Oh, yay. And this is Saturday night when we're recording. So mm-hmm. my guess is it's it'll be sold out by the time you hear this. So yeah. Phenomenal. All right, so real quick, let's go through the iTunes and the Patreons. And then I got a little story that I want to read you. A couple of stories, actually, uh, that are kind of working with exorcisms mm-hmm. right before we listen to an exorcist. So I thought that would go out. So anyway, so let's go to the iTunes first. Bart1064, which is Mike Bartulovich. I'm sure I butchered that. Miss Brooke to you, DH of East Kentucky, J. Rad Perry, Caden Colton, M. Flack 7, Sandman4261031, St. Novius, which is Garrett King. Mm, Nurse WKZ? Nurse Weeks? I don't know. Thank you for those lovely reviews. Thank you guys for they helped the to show out way more than you realize. Oh my gosh, they were amazing. Thank you guys so much. And we got some new Patreon subscribers Lexi Johnson, Liz Chioto, and Andrew uh, Tori actually upped his pledge. Thank you guys so much. We appreciate you more than you'll know. So I'm going to read this first story. It's it's short, but I'm really not even reading it for the story as much as the response. Okay. There was a um, a famous exorcism case that happened um, up in Connecticut from uh, a young lady named by the name of Pat Reading. Mm-hmm. This is just a very brief synopsis. We could do a, a, a whole show on this thing, but this is just a brief synopsis so I can get to the point. So this is the case of a mother from Litchfield, Connecticut, who in the 80s, 1980s, began showing signs of demonic possession. And 
it was a really intriguing story. So Pat Reading had never previously been involved in any type of practice of the occult, and she had no history of mental illness. For this reason, it was especially unsettling when she began hearing strange banging noises in her home, which shortly progressed to the overturning of furniture, violent attacks on her. Paranormal investigator John Zaffis, who recorded the events from this case, claims that hair was ripped right out of Pat's scalp and bite marks were inexplicably appeared on Pat's back. Now, a Catholic priest was called in to perform an exorcism, and all in all, 16 exorcisms were attempted, but to no avail. What? In fact, up until Reading died from um, colon cancer, she continued to suffer from the attacks. Oh. This has led Zaphos to conclude that Reading was a soul victim, which is a purely innocent individual never previously exposed to paranormal activity how, uh, who someone fell victim to an evil supernatural force. Wow. Bless her heart. And like I said, there's a really lot more that goes into oh, that story. Oh, goodness. But I'll tell you that story for the response on the site that I was on. It says, this is Pat Reading's daughter, and all of this is nothing more than a manifestation by John Zaffis for monetary gain. John is nothing more than a charlatan, following in the fraudulent footsteps of his estranged aunt and uncle, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Oh. Who originally manipulated my mother and offered her millions of dollars to play along with their scam. My mother is dead, and she begged my forgiveness with her dying breath for being part of this ridiculous lie. The supposed demon that possessed my mother is no more real than Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Be careful, of what you're reading here, be much more careful with someone like John Zappas, who will whisper scary stories into your ear while his wicked fingers reach for your wallet. Wow. Oh, so man. the whole reason that I read that is I've been very vocal about my thoughts on, mm-hmm. um, you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah. That I don't think that they were legit. Well, I, thank I just, God that didn't happen to that lady. But. You know, here's here's a young woman that states, and we're going to actually tell that full story mm-hmm. on one of the shorts next week. But that this young lady is basically saying, "Hey, Ed and Lorraine offered my mom millions to just go along with the plan," and then now their nephew comes in and he's trying to get something off of it. So, I mean, there's just another person basically saying Ed and Lorraine Warren were fakes and scammers, wow. which I already felt anyway. Mm-hmm. Well. Man, I'm glad it didn't really happen to her. That's what's a terrible thing. All right. This one is semi-humorous, even though it really makes the state look bad. So here's the headline. It says, Eastern Kentucky man sues Hampton Inn, accuses boss of trying to force exorcism on him. Oh, I remember seeing that somewhere. This is a real story. And this just happened on uh, the 29th. So what, yesterday, day before yesterday? This is in Hazard, Kentucky. It says an Eastern Kentucky man has filed a lawsuit against Hampton Inn and his boss after he says he was punished for not undergoing an exorcism. The lawsuit was filed in Perry Circuit Court in March, and the plaintiff is Jason Fields of Leslie County. The defendants are Hampton Inn, Employee Resource Group, and Sharon Linden. Fields states in the lawsuit that he started working in Hampton Inn as a front desk employee beginning in 2016. Sharon Linden, his manager, Learned Fields was going through a divorce and believed his marital problems were because he had demons. Lyndon is accused of telling Fields that he had to get cleansed in order to keep working at the hotel. Lyndon gave Fields a questionnaire with many questions about religion and intimate activities. And I've seen the questionnaire. We won't get into it, but it asked how often he masturbates and all kinds of stuff in this. But anyway, he said he had to... Uh, basically do this before the exorcism, and then he could come back to work. So Fields accuses Lyndon of punishing him for not participating in the questionnaire and the exorcism by changing his shift and bringing in people from her ministry to pray over him while he's working. This would happen in front of guests, and this would lead Fields to quit his job. Well, why in the hell would you want to work for somebody like that anyway? It's absolutely crazy. So, anyways, that's. I just thought that was interesting, and since we were talking about exorcisms tonight, I didn't even think that was 
pretty timely. Sick. So, anything, without further ado, I guess we can listen to uh, Bishop James Long, and then afterwards we'll talk about a few other shows we got going up and call it a night. All right. Sounds great, babe. Hey, guys, I got a special treat for you this week. Bishop James Long is going to be on with us, and, of course, he's going to be our special guest speaker at the Louisville show that we've got coming up April 6th. There's only about 10 tickets left for that. Uh, If you haven't bought your tickets yet already, you're probably going to want to buy them after you hear Bishop Long speak. Bishop Long, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. I've had a privilege of, of seeing you do a couple of presentations, and I've actually seen you do a wedding, so not, you know, a good thing, not like a exorcism or something, but actually, so, so you uh, preside over the wedding, uh, over some good friends of mine, and, and you come across as a completely genuine class act, and I want to commend you for that, because I know you're, uh, you do a lot for the community that you live in. And, uh, I just want to say thank you for doing that. Well, I appreciate that. That is really kind of you to say. So I know the audience out here that our audience, it's obviously a paranormal group. They like the fact of talking, obviously of those types of subjects and you are an exorcist and a demonologist. You actually teach courses on those types of things. And I want you to kind of tell me a little bit about how you got into that side of it. I mean, obviously you were uh, already in the clergy, but what happened to get you into this side of it from the demonology and exorcism standpoint? Well, you know, I I knew I wanted to be a priest when I was five years old. I mean, I just knew. In kindergarten, I remember telling my mom that I want to do what he does, and I was pointing at the priest, you know, saying Mass. And that that never went away. It just actually grew. And then around nine years old, I, I remember picking up my first book on demonology, and it was it, it, it was like an aha moment, and it, it felt so natural, like I was truly guided towards as many books as I could possibly find. And back then, we didn't have computers, so we had card catalogs. So, you know, I had to go through all the, I mean, all, all the stuff and all the files, and I finally got as many books, and I was reading, and just reading, and reading, and reading, and the more I read, the more I wanted to know, and it, that never never went away, ever. I mean, even today, I still read as much as I can on the topic, and so I decided then um, to, to join uh, the Roman Catholic Seminary, and I studied for six years, and truly, it was the best years of my life. It was the education that I received uh, was, oh my God, I, I just, I cannot speak highly enough. I mean, it's just, I was truly blessed. But I really felt a deep calling to serve everybody, regardless of their faith or anything else. I wanted to serve everyone. And, and there were some other issues that I had with the Roman Church, so I decided to join the Old Catholics. And, um, and I was ordained a deacon priest, and then eventually consecrated to the Episcopacy. And so I was trained um, by an exorcist, and I, I, as of today, I've done 28 actual documented exorcisms. And these are real exorcisms on individuals who are validly possessed. And I say documented because there were um, professionals, uh, medical professionals that were there that also have documentation of what occurred. And so um, that's different than the than a house blessing or a minor right of exorcism. So I've done hundreds, thousands of minor rights of exorcism. But the solemn right, I've done 28 as of today. And, and I wanted to, for me, I've been in the paranormal for such a long time that I wanted to give back and teach because I love teaching. And so I wanted to teach people at least a little bit of what I've seen and what I know on the subject so that uh, other people can can gain some information on the topic as well. Well, that's fascinating in its own right. Just to talk about the, uh, you know, the smaller exorcisms, the the minor rights, is that what what the The term is? You know, just to hear that how many of those are out there. So let me ask you this. How How many calls a week would you say 
you got or an email or something of that nature with someone stating that they felt like they needed an exorcism done? Uh, when I see you April the 6th, I will show you my phone. Uh, right now, let me double check. And two weeks ago, I cleared it out. Let me just double check one second here. I have 6,359 emails. <laughs> Goodness. And so when you see it, I'll, I'll have it completely cleared. Hopefully I'll go through all of them as much as I can. Uh, now, of course, there are some some nonsense uh, emails as far as, you know, the, the, the ridiculous emails. They want to sell me this or sell me that, that kind of spam emails. But uh, I would say 80% of those emails are people around the world um, requesting and even demanding help. Now you've you've made your round of uh, some of the shows on TV. I know you uh, mm-hmm. did. You do one or two episodes of Ghost Adventures. Uh, three, three episodes. I'm sorry, my research is shoddy, as anybody who listens to us will know. <laughs> I try to do most of this <laughs> off right. memory. So, um, let me ask you a question. And and if you don't feel comfortable asking this, I completely understand. I've been very vocal on this show about Zach Bagans, and th- th- my reason for being vocal is I feel like two things. I feel like that he's very disrespectful, not all the time. He seems like he can be a very, very nice guy, but sometimes on camera, I feel like that he's disrespectful in a setting of trying to communicate with someone who's passed on. A lot of the yelling and the screaming and the taunting, I just don't agree with. So I'm very critical about that. And he also claims to be possessed way more than I would think someone would be in those situations. What were your experiences with Zach and the gang um, as far as being able to actually work with them? Because I'm just speaking on what I see on TV. You actually got to hang around these guys. Well, and I speak to Zach um, often as well, but I can tell you that the experiences that I had that I had Bobby Mackey's without question was 100% genuine. And actually, they didn't air quite a bit of stuff that was very personal that caused the guys to really shut down. I mean, we're talking completely shut down. Um, and I don't talk about that because it's personal unless they want to discuss that. They certainly can. But I, one thing that I'll tell people is I will never fake something, ever, because I have been in the paranormal for 20-plus years, and I have worked my tail off uh, to build some type of credibility, which I hope I have within the paranormal, and I refuse under any circumstances to blow that credibility just for a television show. I get offered television shows all the time, and they always tell me, uh, if you just perform an exorcism on camera, and then I tell them, well, if you just go to church, maybe you wouldn't ever ask me to do something uh, such an abomination like that, because it's not something you're supposed to see. It's not supposed to, it's not a grab your popcorn and, and soft drink and watch the show. This is a very special, it's a very sacred rite, and I, I have told Zach many times, not off the taunting, knock it off. You're gonna, I'm telling you, you're gonna get in some trouble. And he did, and he even admitted that there was some very serious activity going on in his home. And I can tell you, I validated what was going on in his home. So we worked through that issue. Um, but uh, yeah, the, Bobby Mackey's. The, there were some things that we captured that were very intense, very very intense. And I'll tell you, if I go to a place and there's nothing there, I'm going to tell you. Uh, if there is something there, then I'll tell you what it was, unless it was a very personal thing, and I don't want to obviously divulge that information. But if something happened, I'm very straightforward. And I don't work for Bobby Mackey's. So if there's no sense, I'm not going to you know, make up stories. I'll just tell you what I experienced. And we've been to Bobby Mackey's a few times, and it's definitely a... Um a creepy feeling place. And, you know, of course we've been there when it was open and, you know, for, with the music and everything. And we've been there on private, uh, tours when it wasn't open. Matter of fact, we're going back on June 9th, which is a Sunday. I think it's the ninth, but we're actually doing one of our live events inside Bobby Mackey's with the paranormal group up there. So, um, definitely looking forward to, to being back up there, but definitely cautious at the same time. Oh, sure. You know, and that's the thing. I think people sometimes people get frustrated because you know they've seen the show and they they expect to be pushed or scratched or something something 
to happen. But people have got to understand when I was there, I was in the middle of performing the minor rite of exorcism. And that is a, that in itself is a very sacred rite. And basically, the minor rite is performed when a demonic entity or malevolent spirit has infested itself within a building or home. And then I'm called out to perform the minor rite. The purpose of it is to force the entity um, to, to manifest itself. And then you, you perform the ritual. So I do provoke, but I provoke through prayer. And exorcist, that is how you provoke. You do not. There's a difference between inviting and provoking through prayer. So an exorcist will provoke through prayer. Invitation is when you say, hey, come on, do something. I dare you to do something. I dare you to push me. Now you've just invited yourself to any type of demonic attachment. So there's a big difference between the two there. Now, I've seen your presentation, I want to say it was six, seven years ago. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever ever seen you live and totally captivated me, which is why I wanted you to come do this live event with us. And and what I saw you do, and I'm not going to have you speak too much on it because obviously we want people to see you live do this, but you did the, the stages of demonic possession. Uh, and mm-hmm. I was just completely blown away at how that was broken down and the, um, uh, the clips of exorcisms that you played, it just, everything tied in. It truly was one of the most awesome presentations of anything I've ever seen in my entire life. So I just wanted to say thank you for leaving an impression because that definitely is something that stuck with me six, seven years later. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, and actually if people show up there, they're going to find that, um, the three stages that many people refer to, um, it's it actually incorrect. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about why that is, because there, there's another, there is, when you get a little bit deeper with infestation, uh, there's, um, there's a little bit deeper, more, more information there. And I'm going to be sharing that with everybody on, uh, on the gathering. So, Here's what I want to do now, Bishop Long. Uh, we've talked about the quote-unquote uh, headlining star stuff, the, the exorcism, demonology. That's what a lot of people want to hear. But I want people to know about the other side of Bishop Long. Um, you're, you you posted something on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, and I share a lot of the stuff that you post in the group because in our Facebook group, we are very encouraging. We're very um, mental health uh, awareness, uh, anti-suicide, as far as getting people to uh, try to get help if they need it. So our, our group is a big 3,000-person support group on helping each other feel good. And you put out a lot of positive messages on Facebook. So I share a lot of those in the group. And one of the things that you put out was you don't really advertise yourself. like You advertise, obviously, as a, as a, uh, a demonologist and an exorcist because that's how you get gigs that help pay for your ministry. But you pointed out that, you know, you don't see yourself as that. That's just part of what you do. You you are a, a uh, uh, clergy first and foremost, and you do a lot of things that probably don't get publicized. And I wanted to see some of that get publicized tonight. So I know everything, like the money that we're paying you for this event is all going to help your ministry. You self-fund all of this stuff. So Take a few minutes and tell everybody about the things that you use this money for and, and what your ministry does. Sure. And also, let me just say, I will be on the April 6th, I will be talking about my experience at the Exorcist House, because I did the Exorcism Live, and there was a huge you know, uproar about that, but I'll chat about that on April 6th and what I experienced, and I think uh, a lot of people are going to be very, very interested in hearing uh, what I experienced on, on the uh, exorcism live at the exorcist house. But the thing is, this with me, I don't, when you see Bishop James Long, one of the things that I have tried so hard on is not to push exorcist, exorcist, because I don't ever want to come across as, I'm using the, the, the name exorcist as sensationalism, so that I can be a big celebrity in the paranormal field. I, I, everything that I have done, all the shows that I have done, every one of them, I've never been paid one penny for. All the television shows, not one penny. Now, at the events, if I have a presentation, if I do a, like for a, your event, and if they do make a donation, I, I 
that donation has to go to my homeless ministry. I have a homeless ministry and a single mother's ministry. And I've been doing homeless ministry since I was 15 years old. I mean, it's, I'm very passionate about it. And there have been so many people who have contacted me who are single moms who, for example, they get out of a, a horrible relationship, a very violent relationship, and they, they're in a home, they don't want to lose their apartment, they don't want to lose their housing, and then they apply for government assistance. Well, if anybody's ever you know, been under, in government assistance, you know it takes a little bit of time to get approved. And so during that transition period, they are in turmoil. Um, and so then they contact me, and they ask for help. And I verify uh, if they need help with electric or food or even their, their rent. And if I have any type of income for any of these events, then I give that to them. I do that because could I theoretically, do I have the right to put every single penny that I make in the paranormal in my pocket? Yes. But that, to me, is not being, you know, first of all, it's not being a bishop. Second of all, it's not being Christ-like. And third, I, don't need, I have a roof over my head. I have food. I have clothes. I am blessed. And I have taken a vow of poverty. I'm a Benedictine, um, and I've been a Benedictine for many, since 2004. And so as a Benedictine, my vow of poverty, I take that very seriously. And so I go out to homeless camps in Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee, and I pass out food. I pass out sleeping bags, clothes, shoes, socks, gloves, whatever that they need. If I if I can, then I pass that out. And the single moms who contact me, then I give them the funds if they need immediate assistance. I help them. And it's it's rather simple. People ask me why do I do it? Well, it's very 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 easy, because that is where I see God. The only time we should ever look down upon someone is when we're bending over to pick them up. And when you are helping someone who you know cannot return the favor as far as financially or any other way, just to see that light in their eyes, that, gl- just that, that, that small glimmer, that's God. Because throughout their whole entire, if they're homeless, you see that light dim in, in these people. You see hopelessness. And one act, one very kind of act of love is enough to see that spark. And that is, that is where you see the divine. That's where I experience God. And so that's why I do this. I do it because I'm called to do it. And I, I do it because selfishly um, I also experience God in that moment. Uh, and and that's part of what I was saying earlier when I said that I commend you for what you do, because like I said, I, I I know enough about you to know that this is who you are. You are just genuinely a good guy that's doing what you are called to do. And like I said, I 100% commend you for it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, again, I, I think if anybody goes out with me and they... And they see the people, a lot of people say, well, why do you do with the homeless? Well, why don't they just go out and get a job? Why don't they just do this? A lot of the homeless may have suffering from mental illness, or they may suffering from, you know, a drug addiction. Or they say, well, why don't they go to a homeless shelter? They don't need to be out in the street begging for money. People got to understand, I used to be a homeless, I used to be a shelter coordinator, a homeless shelter coordinator. So I know what goes on behind the scenes. And a lot of people who are homeless, they will have weapons on them, a knife or something to protect themselves. That is their protection. And when they go to a homeless shelter, they're required to, to turn all that, all that into uh, the person who takes the intake. Sometimes, well, the majority of time, when they check out, their items are not given back to them. And for you and me, that knife may not be a big symbol, but for them, that is the difference between protecting themselves and not protecting themselves. And that's why a lot of people don't go to homeless shelters, because they have to turn in their personal items, and a lot of times they don't get them back. And so that's why they prefer to sleep on, you know, on, on the streets, because at least they have that, um, that, that, that weapon to protect themselves. Well, I mean, that makes perfect sense, and I'd never really thought about it from that standpoint, because I didn't know. Like, I'm sure most people yeah. don't know. So I will say this. Um, you know, when I came to you and said, hey, will you do this show? And I asked what your fee was, 
you told me, and another credit to to what you do, you told me, ah, what do you think's fair? Just make a donation. And I thought that was incredible because I really was expecting, you know, I've got this hardcore number because, like I said, I've I've seen you on TV. I've seen you on, I believe, I believe you were part of a History Channel special on that was just talking about hell. And I remembered seeing. I've been, yeah, I've been, I've been a lot on TV, <laughs> a lot. Uh, and you know, and the reason, honest to God, for it is if you if you notice, if you ever watch it, it's to get the word about the paranormal clergy out. The paranormal clergy is something I started 15 years ago, and I really didn't want to do it because I, I wanted to stay private with my ministry. But people were telling me, you know, James, we need help. We need. We need. When I started, there was only one other clergy helping the paranormal. And that was Father Andrew Calder, and he was Anglican. He wasn't a Catholic priest. And so when I started, there were no Catholic clergy, none, no old Catholic, no Roman Catholics helping the paranormal community. I was the first. And because I was the first and I was old Catholic, you know, you have to take the good, <laughs> the good comments with the bad comments because there were plenty. And, um, but it was me, it was me and Father Andrew Calder. And that was it. And, you know, we, we discussed things, you know, back in the day, and you may, you may know this, there was no Facebook, there was no MySpace. We communicated through Yahoo groups. <laughs> That's how the paranormal community, <laughs> you know, communicated with each other. Yahoo groups, that was the thing. That was it. Uh, boy, how times have changed. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so let me ask you this. You, you have some um, classes that people can take online. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about these classes. Yeah, I have a master's of education, so I love to teach. Uh, that's a deep passion of mine as well. So anything that I can teach and pass on, I, I love to do that. And so I started uh, the paranormalcourse.com, and it contains demonology, paranormal studies, angelology, and genealogy. You can learn all four courses. A hundred percent of those funds Besides the PayPal fees, I can't do anything about that. But 100% of those funds goes to helping the, my homeless ministry and single mother's ministry. I have 48 moms right now desperately needing help right now. The difference between being homeless and not being homeless. And so um, all that goes to, and it's only forty nine ninety nine. That's it. I can't get it any lower than that. And I tried, but that's as low as I can get it. And I don't think that's asking that much for four really detailed courses. Um, I'm very proud of them. So, paranormalcourse.com, and um, again, it all goes to helping fund the ministry. And these are are learned as you go, like uh, learn at your own pace, correct? It is, and and that's the great thing. You can learn pretty much anywhere. I mean, as long as you get a computer, you can be anywhere in the world, and you can learn at your own pace. There is no, you have to do this at a certain time, a certain date. You learn at your own pace. And um, and at your own convenience. So there is no school. There's no building. It's all 100% online. And it's just one of those things that, for me, it's just me passing on at least the information that I have learned throughout the years. And I want to pass that on to other people. So let me ask you this, Bishop Long, because we're going to go ahead and, and uh, finish up with the interview. But if somebody, other than that, if somebody wanted to make a donation to your ministry, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, and yeah, and thank you for that question. The best the best way to go is uh, then go to www.bishopjameslong.com, bishopjameslong.com, and you will see a link there that says a donation to the homeless now or single mothers. When you make the donation, I always tell people, do me a favor. Um, if you want it to go to the homeless ministry, then just say homeless ministry. If you would prefer it to go to the single moms ministry, just say single moms. If you don't care and you just want to make a donation, then I'll just, uh, those funds will be distributed to whatever is the immediate need. So that's uh, entirely up to the person that donates. But Bishop James Long, L-O-N-G, and then um, we can go from there. Bishop Long, it's been awesome having you on. It's been too long. We've tried this a couple of times, and... You know, it just uh, timing doesn't always work out, but I'm I'm glad that we finally got you on. Can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks and uh, really looking forward to it. Me too. It's going to be exciting time. All right, brother. Well, I'll talk to you very soon. Thanks. So 
What do you think about Bishop Long? Is he not like a super great guy or what? Very, very nice man. And I'm telling you guys, those of you lucky enough to come to the Louisville show and see his presentation, it's going to freak the heck out of you. <laughs> it's pretty messed up. Yeah. It shall be interesting. Well, we picked uh, our winner for the Sally House we show. We did. And that was Becky Faulkner, who is going to be spending the night, her and a friend, with Tracy and myself and Justin and Lisa. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fun. I know. I'm excited. I can't wait, guys. Can you? Uh, I mean, I can't wait. <laughs> so that's in August. Uh, Houston, two sold-out shows. Bobby Mackey sold out. Louisville will now be sold out. So the next chance that you can get tickets is up in July in Indianapolis, and that'll be us, Bro Ohio, and Justin Rimmel. So that'll be fun. So you can get all these tickets for all the upcoming shows and... We just added another show today. It is in Indianapolis, September 14th. It is Tracy and myself and Out of the Shadows podcast with Shane Waters. Yeah, I can't wait for that one. Yeah, that'll be fun, too. So we'll be in India a couple of times this yeah. year. So, guys, that is it. Remember, go to hillbillyhorrorstories.com. You can get tickets for any of the events, uh, including all the surrounding events in Atchison, Kansas. They've got the uh, cemetery tours and the trolley rides and tours of the Sally House and all that stuff you can get. And uh, like I said, any tickets for the live events are there. And then our new shirt designs are there. Everything that you could possibly need to hill it up. Yep. Sounds good, guys. We'll see you next week. Have a blessed week, guys.